relationship thing is is, is key uh, with any type of process or continuous improvement. Um, you know, if you go in without asking questions and you're just giving direction or throwing out ideas, saying let's do this, you know, you kind of turn yourself into a bull in a china shop, um, and people just shut down. everybody to a quality podcast season three we are joined with kyle comp joined us last season i think it's been a while uh, from the banking industry and uh, we'll put all of your information down below kyle but for our new listeners why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself sure well first off thanks for having me let me back on the show i uh, enjoy uh, engaging with you and jake on linkedin um i have a bit of a at least to me it's a unique background went to school for engineering um, never in my wildest dreams thought that I would be working in the financial services industry. Um, but here I am, you know, living the dream. Um, when I, when I talked to my colleagues and asked them how they got into banking, they're like, well, kind of like you, I accidentally got into it. There's an opportunity that came up, I joined and then never left. Um, you know, and here, here they are 25 years later. So we'll see if that's me again in another 20 years. Um, but so I, right. I bring that engineering, uh, type process mindset to uh, the financial services industry. Awesome. Good. So we talked about that uh, the last time you were on, and I feel like maybe we had some uh, unfinished conversation, which is why I wanted to have you back on. And there's a lot of folks that reach out to us uh, that we talk to that are not in manufacturing uh, or some type of supply chain for manufacturing um, that are struggling with lean implementation. Um, part of that is, you know, a knowledge gap. Part of that is there's a lot of stuff out on the internet. Um, not all of it is good and helpful or accurate. Um, and so someone like you, who, you know, you're engaged in the world of finance and applying lean principles there, I think can offer a lot of value, um, you know, to these folks. So we wanted to talk today you know, about processes in banking um, and your experience, you know, applying the tools of lean to those processes. So what do you want to start today, Kyle? We could just start with the basics. Everyone knows, what everyone knows about banks is they, you know, you, you have your checking account there for your deposits and then they give out loans. Those are the two basic banking products. So maybe we start with um, like a loan process. Maybe I uh, I clarify as an idiot in the banking world. Can I just ask a difficult question? What is an origination? It's a fancy word for uh, underwriting and delivering a loan. Gotcha. It's all the paperwork that goes into processing a loan. I just didn't want to get my terms yeah. wrong while I got Kyle in the room. I'm sorry. So what do you say to all the people that start their conversation with, but we're not a factory. That doesn't apply to us. So I, when I, when I first came into the, into the banking world that I heard that comment quite a bit. Um, when I, they heard my background as an engineer, they're like, Oh, great. I could just see it in their faces. You know, they didn't see it or say it. Um, I, I could see that they were thinking it and, I said, you know what? You're right. We aren't assembling uh, cell phones here or even cars, but you are assembling loans. Um, and there's a process to that. Um, one of the first things I did was I was challenged with, okay, prove it. Um, and the, in the first place I did that was in that, that loan area. And I was given like two weeks and I, <clears throat> we were there when I joined, they're already in the middle of uh, an improvement initiative to decrease the, uh, this turnaround time from the time a, a loan request came in to the time there was a decision on it. And I'll just use some basic numbers here. So say it was taking 20 days to get a decision. And this isn't like car loans. This is like commercial complex loans. Um, and say they wanted to cut down to 10 days. They'd have to get there. So that was the target. That was the challenge. And so they had come up with these ideas of improvements that they could do to the process and um, thought they could get that, that turnaround time decreased. And uh, I remember I was sitting at this report out meeting with what these different leads were presenting these ideas. And 
um, they're good ideas. They, they may, maybe they work, maybe they don't. Um, but then eventually that later on, they finally asked me like, Hey, like, what do you think of all this? You're new here. You know, you haven't been in banking. You sat there all day listening to these ideas and the root causes or what we think of the root causes and how they're going to help. And what do you think? And I go, honestly, I have no idea if this is going to work. Not because I don't understand banking fully yet, but I am sitting through all this today. I don't understand what the process is. So I can't in my mind pinpoint where each of these countermeasures are going to actually help the process. And they're like, oh, well, it's very, you know, it's very clear to us. Well, yeah, you guys have lived this for years. Um, and I go, so would you be open or would you be against me just helping you discover the process? And they're like, well, no, let's, we can wait a couple of weeks here. We'll delay stuff a couple of weeks. You know, we hired you to come in and help us with this kind of stuff. So go, go do your thing. And so I, I did that. I went and started sitting with um, the different members in the back office who were doing all this processing work. And I didn't go in there, you know, with a, a stopwatch and start timing them and say, okay, well, we can reduce, you know, five minutes here, 10 minutes there, an hour there. I simply observed. Um, I sat with underwriters. I sat with managers. I sat with credit officers. I even sat and met with the, the lenders to get this idea of like the sales side. Of what are you doing to input this request to get the back office to be processed and originated? And this took a lot of notes and then started mapping stuff out. I would draw it out on a piece of paper as I was sitting with people. And um, I would share the, the, the map that I come up with. And they're like, yeah, that, that looks right. Then I go on to the next section of people and do the same thing with them. And next thing you know, we had this end to end from the, the submission point of a loan request all the way to approval and everything in between. And then I went back through and that's when we started doing some timing. And I would actually, I would actually follow real loans, kind of follow them through the whole process, the whole value stream. And I would time, I guess some estimates on, you know, how much time people, someone was actually working on that loan, whether doing some kind of financial spreads, you know, uh, calculating debt service code ratio and all these fancy terms that they try and figure out if this, this person or this borrower is a worthy uh, person to get, at, get this loan. <clears throat> and, and then I would also measure how long a deal sat without being touched. Because um, as I was walking through following this, I would see these small stacks of papers here and there. And I'd ask, well, what, what's this? So those are uh, deal packages, that's what they call them. And they're kind of, as they were going through the process, they'd add more information to the, the deal package or the file. And like, why are they sitting here? Well, they're waiting for the next person to pick them up and review them and, and do their part. And uh, interestingly enough, this didn't happen all the time. Um, but there was one stack that had been sitting there for literally six or seven days. Um, no one had touched it. And so I started digging into it. And, you know, after some conversation and asking why, um, you know, they, the first, the first one got down to, well, that's, you know, this credit officer is out of the office this week. He's on PTO. So he's not, his deals are sitting there. Okay. Well, why can't someone else look at these? Well, that's, um, you know, I don't know. So we, we, dug into a little bit more and come to find out, you know, there's policy play at play here. Only certain people look at certain deals of uh, X dollar value or in certain geographies. And well, that person's not in this week. So those deals just, they just sit. So <clears throat> from a customer perspective, that's six or seven days where nothing's getting done on their deal. They're sitting there waiting. Are, are we going to get, are we going to get this money or not? You know, they have a business to run. You know, they're probably using this money to build a new building to you know, increase capacity for manufacturing, or maybe it's a line of credit um, to help them with their cash flow, something like that. Um, and so like, that's a very good example where policy can actually get in the way and where a simple policy change could actually decrease that end-to-end -end time that the customer is experiencing. Um, so anyway, continue going through that process. And I created a picture, uh, you know, with the help of all these people that brought out, here's the actual time people are spending working on providing some kind of value on getting this loan deal done. Here's the time that loan deals are sitting. And it was a very lopsided number. Um, you know, the time actually spent on the deal was, you know, less than 5% of the real time. The other 95% or so was just sitting there. So on this average, on this 20 days it was taking, there was maybe only a few hours that the deal was actually being worked on. In the first time I presented that, even my, my boss, and I was like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, I didn't make this stuff up. I literally, with input of people, this is what we come up with. This is what's happening out there. Um, 
came back with that to the overall group and they're like, okay, now what do we do? <laughs> right. um, but now, now they saw that, hey, we have a process here and I'm like, oh, this is how these deals move through. This is how we get the information in. We crunch some numbers. We add stuff to this to get to this point where, oh, does this make sense for us to lend this money out to this, this uh, individual borrower or borrowers or company? Um, so again, not a car, but you're trying to get, you're trying to assemble these different pieces of information so that you can make a decision as a bank, do we lend this money? And here's the process for doing it. And here's where time is spent doing different things. So I've got, that brings up a lot of questions for me. Um, first though, this reminds me of, um, Art Burns book. I titled slips in my mind right now, but he was talking about uh, the uh, lean turnaround, maybe. Yeah, the lean turnaround. Um, he was talking about uh, something similar. I think it was mortgage mortgage origination, and um, how people involved in the process were on different floors of the building, and you know the the folks that were in the industry that he was trying to coach, um, you know, kind of said, "Well, you know, you can't really help us." We're not, we're not a factory, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and he said, you know, here's the seven people that touch the loan, right? Um, what if you put them at the same table? Right? I mean, just put them in close physical proximity, right? A lot of that goes away. Like, you know, there's a mail courier that shows up at like 8 a.m. every morning and that's it. So if at 8.05, you get your paperwork done and you put it in your basket, it's, you know, 23 hours and 55 minutes until the next person touches it, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so really interesting explanation of what was going on here. So I think the, you know, the first question that uh, popped into my mind was, you know, when, when you started sort of discovering and documenting the process, was there anybody in the company that actually knew what the process was end to end? I believe that, yes, there was. Um, I think they had trouble articulating it. They, they stayed at the high level. Um, we underwrite it, we'll make a decision. Okay, that, or we, you know, we, we, we get the request from the customer, we underwrite it, we make a decision. That was kind of their basic, that's the process, which is a starting point, but that's too high level to really dig in and figure out what working and improve that process. So no one at that yeah. point was I able to find that could articulate it the way that I was able to work with the team to then discover the actual process. Right. So um, there is like the business process, which is almost a theory, right? For example, a factory might be receive materials, assemble materials, ship out finished goods, right? That's the high level process that is similar to what you're describing. Right. In real life, it doesn't look anything like that, right? So you have like the, the business process and then you have like the standard operating procedure, which is here's the actual steps that are approved. And then for each step in that SOP, you have like standard work instructions that explain how to do that step, right? So the process is like how you convert inputs to outputs to create value. And then uh, the procedure is the approved way to do that. And then the standard work instructions is like how to execute the approved way. Um, those three levels of documentation I found to be really important in uh, sustaining consistency through change, right, with an organization. If you're not messing with the top level, you can change, you know, beneath that top level um, with less effort. And if you're only changing the standard work instructions, you can change that fairly frequently without, you know, really messing people up, right? So the kind of the higher up you go, the the more dramatic the change is, right? The more change management you need to have in place. Um, so as you're doing this, I suspected, right, that you would discover the knowledge of the actual standard operating procedure, that middle level, is probably, there's probably nobody or maybe one or two people that actually knows what that is in the whole org. And then the people actually doing the work did any of them understand like end to end or was it mostly I'm just in my own bubble? Yeah, it was pretty siloed. Um, you know, in this particular instance, 
everyone was on the same floor. Um, didn't have the, the mortgage issue that Art brought up, but um, similarly, we we had a mortgage operation too that I worked with Mr. Work, and they did have people on different floors in the same building. And I found that kind of, hey, what if? <laughs> right. <laughs> They're at least in the same floor. Um, but yeah, no one, no one could go through articulate. And when I showed them the map, um, it was pretty eye-opening to people because then they started saying, oh, well, here's how when I'm doing this piece of financial analysis, here's where it goes next. And then they got to do X, Y, and Z. And then if something, if I don't do something correct, well, then that screws them up. And then there's this feedback loop here that then delays everyone else from doing their job or being able to, being able to do their job. Um, so just having that visibility into that SOP level um, was was quite powerful. Yeah, I'll tell you, running distribution centers of my career as in a leadership role, that's like the first five days on site. That it, that is the the deliverable. I just want to understand exactly what they do as a process from end to end by piece, and get the whole team to have that clarity. Here's it visual. I usually post it someplace everybody and their mother can see it, and. Everyone knows exactly how they create value. They know how the person before them does and how they affect the person after. Mm -hmm. And so I love that that lands in the banking industry so very well. Yeah, the, yeah the it does. And I got spoiled. So my, my first, yeah, my first job out of college, I worked in distribution in a large warehouse. And I kind of got spoiled there because they already worked that way. Everyone knew how their job impacted someone else. Um, so then I, my switched gears, it's like, oh, and this, this, every company doesn't operate this way. <laughs> yeah. This is yeah. not well known. Well, and some of it's just physiological, right? Like if I'm loading up a pallet, I know somebody's going to pick it up with a fork truck. That's why I'm putting it on the pallet, you know? Um, so there's a lot of visual cues, you know, that help out in some, some industries. Um, the flow mapping, right? The power that we've seen from that in... Uh, education, right? It's definitely a platform for improvement because you can just look at it and say, that's the problem, right? That's a problem right there, especially once you put like the timestamps on. But for education is phenomenal. Um, we actually had an instance where we mapped out this process and Jake, what was it like 45? 47 steps. steps. I'll never forget steps. it. And well, we printed what I've done. <laughs> no, I, I know. <laughs> so we, we printed it out on 11 by 17 sheets of paper and like, you know, taped them end to end, right, in the office area for folks to see, right? It was like a traffic office. And uh, we moved on, right, from that site. And the next leadership group in like they went around and like took it down right um a couple weeks later the supervisor that worked in that office like dug it out of the trash and put it back up because he was <laughs> like this is the most powerful thing that we have like every new person that i hire that's the first thing we look at and anytime we have a problem we just take a thumbtack and we go stick it in the step on that map where it happened and in a month or two, you have like this heat map and you can quickly see, hey, it's this, like it's right here uh, type of thing. Mm -hmm. So uh, outstanding. So banking, right? Non-factory lean implementation. First thing you did was, you know, document the flow of the process, right? And it was educational for the whole team. Um, tell me about improvement after that, specifically, you mentioned they already had like a a, a bunch of projects, right? Improvement stuff, initiatives. Mm -hmm. uh, what happened there? Well, so basically now that we had a process down and we had some data with it, you know, some time study data, some volume estimates, things like that. Now we could start going back to this list of, you know, whatever it was, 10 countermeasures that they come up with already. How do we quantify how much impact do they think they're going to have on reducing this this turnaround time, because um, then we have our we can do our plan versus actual and see if we implement this, did it actually work and go through that whole PDCA cycle, um, which is a whole new concept as well. <laughs> when I started talking about that, uh, you know, whole scientific method, um, which is also why I was a big advocate of let's not do all this stuff at once because then you don't know mm -hmm. what's working 
being what's not. You might implement something that's having no impact and the impact's going for something else and you could be wasting your time on this, this countermeasure. Um, so we did a little bit of that. So we got some estimates. Okay, countermeasure A will take about this much time, countermeasure B this much time, prioritize them. Um, they still put in multiples, um, but we didn't put in all 10 at once. And then you let them write out a little bit. And okay, are we seeing any improvement here? Um, but what we were able to do was tweak those countermeasures a little bit to get them down deeper to that, that action level where someone's actually doing the work because we wanted them to be able to tell us, hey, by making this change, this is actually making your job easier, better. Um, <clears throat> so you, do you feel the improvement? Um, we didn't want just some number on the calculation saying, yeah, we're, we're going down. Well, if no one feels it though, it doesn't really matter. They're not gonna then adopt and wanna embrace more and more change. Okay, um, so that was one thing that we did. Time out right there, time yeah. out. Because that is a freaking awesome point. And uh, I know Jake wants to jump all over that. So yeah, right. You can have an operation and you can have improvements and you can improve the efficiency of the operation. If after that, the people doing the work feel like they're working harder, feel like it's worse, feel like whatever, that's a loss, not a win, right? Jake? Yeah, I think you covered what I was going after very, very well. Literally in like the standard set of questions. What can I do to make this feel better for you? Mm -hmm. I'm going to do the math. I'm going to have exactly what the countermeasure is, but I want it to feel better. And if it does not, it's not a good solution, right? I can add spikes to your chair to prevent you from sitting down so much at work, but are you going to get more efficient? <laughs> no, no. Yeah, definitely. Well, so there's also as, as a leader, if you put the time into investing in relationships with your people, um, you can do a lot more, right? That's one of the problems with physically large organizations, right? So when I was the GM of a 350 person site, for example, I can't have relationships with all those people. That means I have to have relationships with ops managers who have relationships with supervisors, who have relationships with those folks, right? And there has to be a ratio. Um, I worked with one third-party logistics company that had a corporate guideline of like ratio of people doing the work to leader. And we wouldn't accept new business if the customer wasn't willing to pay for that, right? Because we knew what it took. Um, and that, that creates a whole separate set of challenges because you have to hire the right people in those players, right? If you have those relationships, then you can have honest, safe conversations where people will tell you things like, you know, John, the real issue is I'm bored. I had someone tell me this the other day. They're like, hey, can we do this? Can we do this job differently? And I'm like, well, of course we can do it differently. You know, you know that. Uh, but like, why would we? He's like, man, I get bored. I want to break things up. I'm like, oh, I feel you, man. It's a factory. Like, we're doing the same thing over and over and over again. But, you know, if you really think about it, can you think of a job where you're not doing the same thing over and over and over again? He's like, no, not really. I'm like, so you tell me what you, what you come up with, and we'll give it a shot. I get it. In the meantime, I mean, it is kind of a factory. Right? Um, and so it provides opportunity, like you can throw people a bone, you know, like we're gonna make this operation more efficient, but my goal is not operational efficiency. That's the, actually the outcome. But when I'm doing lean, my goal is not operational efficiency. I, I think I could say it's operational excellence. I think that's fair, right? Mm -hmm. The efficiency is the outcome of taking care of people, taking care of the customer, right? Being damn good at what you do type of thing. So let me ask so, a, a drilled down question there, Kyle. So in your process, you talked about one thing you did was looked at their established countermeasures. You then did tweaking it. So it actually applied to the people doing that actual work. Are you surprised at like the lack of exactly how to do that widely available in the lean community. There's a whole lot of theory like talking about it, but there's not a whole lot of like 
how do I actually do what you just described there? The A to B has a huge yeah. hole in it. Well, and I think there's a, you know, kind of a disconnect there. So um, anyone who's read anything on lean, especially Toyota-based lean, you know, they don't sit at desks. They're constantly out on the floor seeing stuff happen as it happens. And, and so I think when you, you go through and do some high-level analysis, you know we have a problem. There's this number that tells us we aren't where we want to be. Um, we think we can do these things, but without actually going and seeing how these countermeasure, how the work's actually done and connecting that to the countermeasure back up to this problem, it's, it's hard to do. And I, I think traditionally, especially in office environments, um, you know, you're not taught to go walk the floor, taught to observe. You're just, you look at reports and spreadsheets and charts and make decisions off of that. Um, so that, that's, I think, is still very pervasive in the service industry. Uh, I can definitely say it gets, it's gotten better, even where I work. Um, there's a lot more, um, well, now we're all most, mostly virtual, <laughs> but uh, before that, we were still, there's still a lot more walking around. There's, you start to see groups being on uh, regular huddles just to kind of connect to different departments. Um, I had a daily stand-up with my, or it wasn't daily, it was three days a week. I had a daily stand-up with my team when I was managing it um, in, in a department. And that helped me then go to other departments, say, hey guys, here we're, we're, we're doing these other huddles. Here's this issue we're experiencing. And we think it might, have something, it might also impact you or it might be coming from your area. Not that we're criticizing you or you know, pointing a finger at you, but we want to fix this. Um, so that kind of started to open up those lines of communication. Um, so then you know, back to when we put in countermeasures, we actually had an understanding of the work being done so we could create better countermeasures. Um, to then get to better results when we implemented those countermeasures. I, I love it. I'll tell you what made me fall in love with John originally, the beginnings of our relationship. And I tell the story a thousand times. Here's the short version. He wrote a book called How to Win as a Supervisor Right Now. And I was a supervisor at the time and we were connected. And he's like, who wants to read it? I'm like, oh my gosh, this is actually just how to do all the stuff they just talk about in theory. It's specifically how to do it. And that's what prompted my love so shout out to john yeah thank you jake yeah um the impetus for that book i sucked as a supervisor at first um i hired people it struggled with the same things i did and i just i was like there has to be a book about this right and i couldn't find anything you know i could find bits and pieces here and there and i didn't put like a bibliography in my book because it's not that kind of book you know but if I did put one in there, it would be, you know, 20 pages long because, you know, it's a sentence here and a paragraph there and that sort of thing. So I wrote the book because it didn't exist. And like there's a section on like connecting with your team, you know, how to do it. Memorize your team members names. And here's how to do that based on, you know, psychology research. Right? Here's something you can do specifically. Um, and that's that's what the book is like actually do these steps to get these outcomes to you know inform this over here and there there is kind of a dearth of that you know there's a lot of uh, theory out there and i think uh, quite a few of us in this space have learned from a combination of like having a teacher and walking through the processes with them um, and messing up like those are our two teachers right trying trying stuff on our own maybe it works maybe it doesn't yeah i think that relationship thing is is, is key uh, with any type of process or continuous improvement um you know if you go in without asking questions and you're just giving direction or throwing out ideas saying let's do this you know you kind of turn yourself into a bull in a china shop um and people just shut down um when i I, I intentionally, I wasn't always this way when I first started my career. I was more of the, went to school as an engineer. I thought I could find the best way to do something. That was the best way. And I learned quickly that's not the best way to go about it if you wanted to, John, to build. John calls that on the engineering spectrum. Yeah. So that's why I like to say I'm, Which, I, I'm a recovering engineer. Yeah. yeah I'm a, I can I'm a say that engineer. because like I am the poster <laughs> child for that, Kyle. So I, I feel you 100%. Right? And 
even once you develop that skill of getting getting along with others and building the team, there's this little part of you inside your brain going, ah, it's not right. <laughs> yep. But the idea is there's the fight past that. So you can get the team to realize that it's not right. And then they come up with the solution versus you constantly. Now there are times where you as a manager, like this mission critical thing, guys, just go do this, take care of this. We're, there's a fire. Yes, go put it out. Don't don't wait for me to tell you to go grab the fire extinguisher and <laughs> put it out. Well, hold um, on. What's how would you like to put that out? That? How I would you know. like to put that out? Yeah, but, uh, but I remember, you know, probably six months in to being in, in banking, I asked my, my manager, I'm like, so we're in a, one, in a one-on-one, I'm like, so what are you hearing? Like, what do people think of me? How am I doing? That type of stuff. Because I want to get some feedback. And, and he goes, you know, they, I've heard, he summarized it very eloquently. He said, they don't always like what you have to say, but they don't mind how you say it. Like they're realizing that what you're telling us is it's true. It's, you know, based off observable facts. Um, and, you know, sometimes the truth hurts, um, but until we realize what that truth is, it's hard to move forward and, and make actual changes that are meaningful that people feel. Yeah, absolutely. And that, if there was a theme, I think, to uh, my business and this podcast and everything else, it would be like the psychology component of lean, right? Because when I've seen seen it not work, that's what's missing, right? Um but so I've got a couple of questions for you. The first is, did we accidentally do like the same hair today? Because I, I feel like we're really similar. Like you're very salt and peppery, like, the two of you. Yeah, hey, you're get you're getting there, Jake. Give it a, give it ten years, you'll be a dead ringer. <laughs> My grandfather has brown hair, so no grays coming into this guy. Uh, I, I, I like it. my grays. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna age like George Pooney. That's my goal. Either All George right. Clooney or Brad Pitt. That's that's my goal. Okay. You're gonna get in progressively worse. Swinging for I that. Can accept that. <laughs> <laughs> this guy, he told well, I have me to get movies. He, I have to get movies first. Yeah. He told yeah. me that he like walked out in the middle of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm like, first of all, you have to watch it just for the cars. Although they did royally screw up right in the beginning of the movie when they're showing the parking lot, there is a super beetle. But the Super Beetle didn't come out until 1974, which was after the Manson murders. So they really fucked that one up, and I don't forgive them. But <laughs> and you wonder why that, I walked out of that movie. That Gia that he was driving, you know, the four speed on the floor with the top down. Oh my mm. god! Okay, I've I've literally only ever walked out of one movie before, and that was Legally Blonde too. Mm. I'm more ashamed you bought tickets to Legally Blonde too. I'm judging you it was for that. A, you know, the uh, it things was... that we do for women. <laughs> exactly. Yes. yes. I already know the story. <laughs> <laughs> so my second question is, is that a miniature golf bag behind you? It is. Because I feel like that's super cool. Yes, this is uh, when I <clears throat> left my former departments. They got me a going away gift and it was... How it's cool is that? Walking golf bag, and these are little pins. It's a, it actually is. It's a leather bag. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So, you want to know something else intimidating about the inventory you've got there? You shared a post recently of all of like the industry leading books you're going to read this year in like a pile. Like this is what's on the to do list, and then you read mine first. So. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Jake, I, I didn't read yours first. I, I've already I had read uh, one or two books before yours, but yours got thrown into the list and it, it bumped it bumped up. So, yeah, I wonder how progressively worse you think of me as you make your way through. Get <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the stack. <laughs> well, I oh, have very man. low expectations for your book going in, so you know. I like that. I like that. So it's a pleasant surprise, right? That way, I, that way, I, yeah, that way, I, I couldn't be disappointed. When, yeah. when I got to the chapter about the aliens, I'm like, you know what? This makes sense. <laughs> I know the guy that wrote this. This fits very suspiciously well, right? Yeah. Well, at least we know it. It's he that Jake actually wrote the book. No ghostwriter here. <laughs> yeah, no one. No one else is going to have draft people and go. I'm signing off on this. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> no one oh, believe me, I had a very serious conversation with Jake about that chapter. And at yeah. the end of the day, we were like, you know what? It works. Let's go with it. 
Um, my, but, my funnest part is if you're on the engineering spectrum, as John calls it, and you're past the 50% mark, you hate that part so much. You just want to slam the whole book and throw it in the trash. <laughs> but, but if you, you can abstract, it yeah. actually is a valid point yeah. that needs to be taught. The flip, that's the flip side is like the, the creatives and the artistic types that have given feedback on the book. That's their favorite chapter. They're like, oh my gosh, I got that. Like that. But you know what? I you will never hear that in another book. Any other book I've read, it, they've never gone to that level. So you really separate yourself out there, Jake. You, I don't know. You, you've gone to another galaxy far, far away. <laughs> Shout out to all the lean people who don't write about aliens. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those lemon harvests. Let me tell you. Oh, what. yeah. Yeah. Oh. Okay, so uh, Kyle, to get us back on topic a little bit, um, you know, you're in banking, which is a service industry, and one of the reasons we wanted to have this show is there's a lot of people um, who are tasked with continuous improvement and lean in service industries, and sometimes I've had conversations with them, and they're uh, a little discouraged, you know, or frustrated. Uh, it can be a lot of headwinds, and you know, talking through, uh, you're documenting the process, educating the team, you know, through that, uh, implementing some projects. Why don't you tell us about some of your wins and what that was like for the team as well as for you and your role? Yeah. So, you know, going back to the example we've been talking about, um, you know, we, t we talked about needing, to, needing some standards. So, yeah, we have the, the SOP level process. And then one of the issues that was now that we had uncovered was you can't submit an incomplete loan request and expect an answer to be given. You know, can we, you can't submit a loan application uh, without financials. Like we got to know this company's financials. Can they even afford to cover this debt? Um, and so I, I, the example I used was like, okay, we, we know there's a potential deal here. Throw some stuff down this paper, crumple it up, threw it over the fence to the people that are going to underwrite this, and yeah, wish for the best. No, we got to get away from that um, because you know, thinking of the inputs to outputs to deliver value, if you give me crappy inputs or no inputs at all, I I can't produce anything for you. Um, so we did create some structure and some standards around that front door to get a loan deal into that origination group, and we created a checklist of. Um, when these things come in here, this is the bare minimum of things that we need. Otherwise, it's it's going to get kicked back. So kind of putting in that I'm not going to accept defects. I will not pass on defects mentality, um, which that sounds easy. But then that took a lot, a few meetings of going through, okay, here's all, here's the entire universe of stuff we could possibly want. What do we need? What information do we need at each step in the process? So that way we can keep stuff moving, but we don't want to bog it down in the beginning. So you can't even get a deal started because what you don't want to do is put a lot of time and effort into a deal that you're never going to do anyway and waste that time on it. Um, so we need to figure out a way to also get to a quick no as well, because that can be valuable so that we can move on to the next deal, or next customer, or help that customer find some better, better solution for what they need for their business. Um, so in doing that, we started to get um, better information up front that we needed to start the process of underwriting this loan um you know and that took off a little bit of time because now you're not spending time going back and forth and having this this vicious circle of um well i need this no i need that now we got to schedule a meeting and, and so on and so forth um <clears throat> so that was a that was a win for the people receiving the better quality information we had to some change management with the people who now have to provide this information um and we had to just clearly articulate, here's why uh, you as a lender, and this lender also would have, they'd have a, a, an assistant most of the time. Here's why we need this information. Um, so if you're able to get this from your customers and then you submit that in with this, this loan request, here's what that does for you. It allows us to get to that quicker yes or quicker no. So if this customer is not sitting you know, out there business or on their farm or something and wondering, well, where, where is this deal at? Um, so that was one early win, very simple. That's not a hard, you don't have to go buy technology to do that. That was being, you know, creativity over capital. Um, we identified some, um, so obviously I, I mentioned before that there was only really only a few hours of actual work within this 20 days 
So it wasn't about let's not focus on how do we make the actual work faster. Because if you take it from four hours to three and a half hours, not really that big of a deal. If you take out five days of waiting time where nothing's happening at all, that <laughs> shrinks the overall engine process and the customer feels that. <laughs> right. So let's focus on reducing that. What can we do to take that out of the process? Um, and that's where things like looking at our policy and that example I brought up, um, let's not be so strict on only this one role can cover this dollar amount, this geography as an example. And um, let's, let's change the policy, which doesn't happen overnight. Policy changes actually, have, you know, they require board approval. Okay, let's figure out what changes we need to make and, and get those done. Um, and then once those get implemented, that then we can again measure, did that take any of that waiting time out? Do we run the problem where John, you're on vacation and now Jake can't get his loan because you're you know, in Maui drinking out, you know, smoking a cigar on the beach. <laughs> um, so again, that didn't require capital to do that kind of a change. Um, now, can you get into actual technology constraints that are, are adding lag time into the process? Yes. Um, and we, we did implement some of those um, to again, reduce some of the time. Um, again, going through that process of what are the easy things we can do first uh, without investing capital to do it. Um, we, we got some wins. I don't think we ever actually hit our goal um, consistently. You know, there's always variation. Sometimes we did, sometimes we didn't. But that average turnaround time did come down significantly um, over time and, and stay there. That's fantastic. I'll tell you in chain, like cycle time assessment, my number one spot where I absolutely begin is not even with the process at all. I mean, I do want to understand the process, but the first thing is, is there a business rule I can change to improve this? That is the number one, like just start right yeah. in the middle of it. Everywhere else I've ever been into is like, we let customers place orders whenever and fill them whenever we get around to it. Like, nope, you have to deliver an order not, not to get filled in within 24 hours. Boom, overtime goes away. Right. Drivers are consistently late, but still want to be loaded. Here's a rule, $150, you're more than 30 minutes late. Or you have to reschedule with a fee or I'm not going to load you. Whatever rule you create is oftentimes as impactful or more than actually innovating the process. And there are, you know, when it comes to rules, there are no rules, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you, just, you want to create a new one that makes sense for your business, just do it. Like, hmm. So that reminds me of a cigar joke that we had in Minnesota, uh, Kyle. What is the best way to improve the flavor of your cigar? Smoking in Florida. <laughs> uh, so I love that. Versus example. Aloof, Minnesota. Yes, exactly. Or pretty much anywhere in Minnesota, but I love you, everybody. My home lodge is in uh, St. Louis Park. Shout out to you guys. Um, I especially like you in the summertime. So I like that you shared that story because um, I think there are some people um, who are new. Well, I say, I know for a fact, there are some people that are new in a similar role and uh, they're scared right now. Um, so I appreciate you sharing that, you know, and the encouragement can bring folks. And I like that you touched on a couple of really important um, aspects, right, of improvement there. One is the cycle time reduction, right? Huge cornerstone to continuous improvement and operational excellence. And it doesn't happen by, like you said, doesn't happen by working faster, right? It's very rare that that's part of the equation. I was talking to Dr. M, I think, Jake, I know you know who that is. Um, Kyle does we just, as well. Yeah, we were just chatting online. And he asked about um, cycle time improvement and what percent was work actually being done, right? And there's some studies on this, but of course, they're all averages and, you know, depending on your industry and stuff. Um, and I said, you know, the the worst case, best case scenario, I don't know what you'd call it. I worked in a fabrication shop that had very long machine programs, right? So they're taking tungsten and magnesium and some of these metals that shape kind of like, 
you know, trying to carve a cheese wheel, you know, they don't, they don't hold the tool very well. Um, and, and hours, hours and hours, right. Th these programs would run. Um, so there's a lot you can clean up around that, but we also made the program shorter. It's like, wait a minute. Why, why are you cutting it this way? And you go back and you realize somebody started with this program here and you know, the scrap rate was so high that one of the operators said, well, if I turn the speed down, you know, on this and turn the rotation speed, the Z axis up on the tool, I'll have less scrap rate, you know? Um, and then a couple months later, a different operator tweaked something else. And by the time you get down here, it's a six hour program and you call one industrial engineer in, you know, with a materials engineer and they're like, you know, this is a 45 minute program, right? Um, start by resetting to factory specs. This tool is actually designed to do this for you. <laughs> you know, let's start there. Um, and then the, the really cool thing that you mentioned when you were talking through that uh, one was, yeah, don't try to make the work faster, remove the waste, right? That's the, that's the corner, cornerstone of lean, right? Focus on uh, eliminating the waste. And it's slipping my mind. You made another really good point in there that uh, I wanted to comment salt and on. Peppers but... really show. Yeah, my my salt and pepper is, goes goes below the roots of my hair. Uh, take it away, Jake. Let me see if I can remember what I was thinking of. <laughs> well, Kyle, for the audience, just because we asked, we briefly hit on it. Attack this as you see fit. Just because I want to know, did you enjoy this book? And for the people that are listening by audio, Jake's holding up a copy of Chasing Excellence by Jay Carroll. I, I did. I'm actually, Jake, you'll be happy to know that I'm, I'm going to do a post about your book about a couple of key takeaways. I, I enjoy the key themes that kept coming to me as I was reading the book. I'll take that. And if you want to attack it, please do so. It'll get recorded and put into the show. Like, you had a misspelling on page five. You know what? Honestly, I think your book is probably the first book I read where I did not notice a typo. I don't believe I caught one. Maybe it's because maybe maybe it's, it, it's too, maybe maybe it's because your book was so short. Um, but no, I've I've any book I've ever read, I've always find you know a handful of typos, and I I get stuck on them. Like, did I really just read that? Did they misspell that? Did they use the wrong tense? Um, well, Jake had yeah, a I don't very believe good I editor. Caught that so. in your book. Yeah, Jake had a very hey, good editor. editor. Excellent editor. And again, that editor only only had, you know, 100 pages to review, not 300. So that. <laughs> and it had crab people. So if there was something messed up, you could be like, is he inventing this? Or Yeah, <laughs> this is just a made up word. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> uh, well, uh, Kyle, I appreciate you sharing, you know, a little bit about um, some of the improvements and the impact on the team. Uh, I thought it was cool where you mentioned that you know the, the feedback you got was they don't always like what you have to say but they don't mind how you say it um i have oh, i have been thinking through this thing for about 15 years now on and off um and and i haven't done anything with it which is can i create a mathematical model that describes the relationship between personality and outcomes and continuous improvement right among uh, people that are tasked with CI, because I feel like you could probably put together a valid model there, right? Um, and it's a, I mean, it's a really important takeaway that the way you approach uh, your improvement initiatives is critical. Um, who is that guy from Canada? Marshall McLuhan, right? The medium is the message, right? The medium is the message. Like if you're trying to fix a business, the way you go about it is the message to the employees. They don't give a damn about, you know, the improvement to the business if it doesn't improve their lives and their experience, right? Oh, exactly. Yeah, that's the inspiration for the brand. It's in, people think funny lean guy, how the hell are those two things the same thing? I'm like, they're the same thing. I'm just, I'm operating with a 400 IQ and playing fifth dimensional chess. Like these are the same thing. What I'm really trying to do is get you to buy into my master plan. That's how you do yeah, it. You, you have to be a fun person to work with. You know, if, yeah. I, if I was and terrible you, to work with, like, why would you want to listen to me? Sure. Yeah. Well, and that's where the, um, 
you know, if you look at the, the evolution of like the role, most of the companies that I've worked with, if they have a like CI leader role, the reason that person is in the role is because they're a good teacher, right? Most of these companies have excellent engineers that are great at solving problems and modeling solutions and problems and all of that. Uh, but they're not necessarily skilled with um, talking to other people, right? Communication skills, teaching leadership. A lot of individual contributors are are that way. Like they're they've got awesome brains and you know specific skill set. Uh, the relationality piece, not so much, right? And so the CI person is often that bridge that sits in the relationality chair to like get these groups to talk to each other, you know, kind of thing. Um, and it's a, um, I don't know, it's an important conversation that I have with folks. You know, why why are you doing this? You know, what what do you actually like doing? I like solving problems. Great, but you're in a CI role. Like your job is not actually to solve problems. Your job is to coach other people to solve the problems, right? Uh, it's right. it's actually it's different, right? Yeah. So I think. The person in that role, the people in that role need to understand that, but also the companies hiring those roles need to understand that because oftentimes they come hire you, John. Hey, John, you're a CI leader. Go do this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then they're expecting them on you to actually solve the problems for them. And it's like, yeah, I could do that. But that's yeah. going to constrain how many problems you can solve because I can only solve so many problems. Yeah. And yeah. again, I'm new to your company. So how many kind of really solve the right way? Yeah, well, everybody's so, looking for that 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 employee to come in wearing a cape, you know. Yes. Up, up, oh. and away. Yeah. So um, let's use like a metaphor right now. You know, you talk to uh, you, you got kids, Kyle, right? So mm-hmm. if you're talking to a kid about like automobiles, the level of the conversation um, is lower than like if you were talking to me or you know somebody who actually drives right um we're not talking catalytic converters with my two-year-old yeah exactly right (laughs) and and you expect that right now imagine if your two-year-old was in charge of catalytic converters right you would feel awkward because your two-year-old is saying things and giving you direction that's ignorant because they're a two-year-old Right. Well, um, CEOs and boards of directors are sometimes like that two-year-old talking about the catalytic converter. They're, how would you expect anyone to know everything about everything? That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. Of course, they're ignorant. But if you have a business culture that basically punishes openness and honesty, right, or at least doesn't reward it, then you're removing the uh, psychosocial grease that allows a leader to say, Hey, Kyle, why don't you tell me what we need for our continuous improvement program? Why don't you tell me how we should set this up? Cause I don't know dick about it. And I'm comfortable saying that. Right. So I've seen what you describe over and over. Right. And the closer you get to manufacturing, the worse it is because the leaders that are like, you know, we're making tractors, you know, we're supposed to know everything there is about lean and manufacturing and industrial engineering. You know, we sell internationally or whatever. So I can't admit that I don't know, right? Like it's a weakness. Um, and so you get some mandates sometimes that uh, are, are, are not good. They're not smart, right? Right. Yeah, and that gets back to the whole... Uh you'll see lots of posts around psychological safety. You know, safety is a big part of manufacturing. Well, if they're talking physical safety, well, it's that psychological piece as well. If you, if you don't incentivize people to speak up or allow them to speak up, you're going to hold that you're essentially holding your business back. You're creating a liability there. Yeah, for sure. Go ahead, Jake. The, the number one thing in like LinkedIn is the number one, like the place where I fight it every single day is they don't want intellectual dissent or discourse. They do not want it. They do not want to engage in a conversation about how to actually solve something. See the thing you liked yesterday. 
January 22nd for the people listening, something in Kyle's activity history from the day before. Um, so <laughs> when, when I post about it, it's not a tech. Hey, I, I like stuff so it gets visibility. I, I like it so you see it, Jake. Well, I want to yeah. make sure you see it. Yeah, right? Like we should be able to dissent and disagree. And, you know, even if we don't find a middle ground, be men about it, right? Shout out to all the women out there being men about it. But uh, <laughs> you, should be, you should be able to have discourse. And for someone to comment back and go, well, you just disagree with me. I don't like you. Well, that's not how the world works, man. Like business is a series of amoral decision-making to do the best thing we possibly know how with the tools and skills and knowledge we currently have that's ever evolving in all of those directions. So you don't get to just make a bi-emotional statement. This is the way it goes. No, the heck it isn't. I'm, I'm reading the book, uh, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team right now. Ah, oh, good and, book. Yeah, it is a great book, but it talks a lot about that. For a team yeah. to actually gel and work together, the team itself has to be able to have that dissent. They have to be able to challenge each other. They have to be able to disagree um, and really push the other people on the team to, to come to decisions. If it's just the CEO comes in on the executive team and says, here's what we're going to do, and no one else says anything different, that team is going to fall apart very easily yeah yeah why would i even want a friend that that doesn't challenge me that doesn't want me to get better that doesn't like you know man sharpens man if if, if john wasn't improving my life you know he wouldn't be in it right like the mutual agreement is that we I are going to hold each other to be the best men we could possibly be that's right shave your fucking beard so uh, thank you for that <laughs> No, I disagree, Jake. I think we should agree on everything. <laughs> Shave the right side of your mustache, John. Zoom in on that, audience. I did. I shaved it very closely today, and it's the left side. It's just mirrored because of the thing. Oh, yeah. Besides, it's growing back. He has a segment that doesn't grow at all, Kyle. Like, he's a, a radioactive accident. It well, I, I can't a, grow a beard, so. It involved a hand-loaded 7-millimeter Winchester short magnum that uh, might have misfired. And that's as far as we'll go with that conversation because YouTube will take it down. But uh, <laughs> it's growing back. Okay. Slowly. Well, this is my first year with a full goat, right? Like it's still scraggly, terrible, but I turn 31 tomorrow. So maybe that year I'll get a full beard that actually makes sense and looks decent. Well, I mean, you know, calling it full is a stretch, but you're trying. So keep up the good work. <laughs> 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 yeah, so, you know, talking about psychological safety, um, giving directives, you know, top-down uh, command and control, that sort of thing. I had uh, something yesterday or the day before at my factory. So most folks know I run a, run a factory on the side. And um, we were talking about flow. You say that so nonchalantly, like, yeah, and, I, just really, I run this on the side. I do, but I, it's not huge. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not like... A, a car factory or something. But anyway, I, I'm talking to two guys, two supervisors, and they're young, right, and dumb. I'm old and dumb. They're young and dumb. And uh, we were talking about flow, and we didn't have the flow that I was looking for. And I told them, we need to have a conversation and a line because we're going to talk to this one operator that operates this one machine that is, you know, historically the bottleneck. And I want to make sure our, you know, our messages align. And uh, it was the end of the day, and we were all you know, kind of tired and hangry. So, you know, we were arguing for 15 or 20 minutes or something. And uh, I said, okay, guys, I can break out VenSim right now and put together a model and show you what I'm talking about. Or, you know, I'm just going to ask you to trust me as the industrial engineer in the group, you know, that like, I know what I'm talking about. Just, just assume that I'm right for the sake of the conversation. You know, can you do that for me? And they were like, oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. I'm like, okay. So, you know, if we assume this, this, and this, then, you know, here's what we want to have happen. And I was coaching them through, you know, like, it's not a policy, it's dynamic. You know, you're, you don't, I don't want this guy to do the same thing over and over again. I want him to learn how to look at these leading indicators to change his methodology, right? Um, and it had to do with setup and change over time. So like how many times per day type of thing. And like, there's not a number, right? It's all relative. So at the end of the conversation, you know, we had a, 
like a, a greater collective understanding. And that was the point where I could have said, okay, we all had our say, I'm the boss, we're doing it this way, right? But I didn't, I said this, you know, this operator has to learn to see things the way we see them. And you know what, we see things a little bit differently already, right? We're, we're all on a learning curve. And I'm trying to help educate you guys. Yeah, I get it. I'm farther ahead than you guys are. I'm, I've literally been working as long as, like, since you've been alive, you know, for one of the guys. Um, you know, he's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I've been a supervisor. I've been a salaried member of management, like, since the year you were born. <laughs> you know? uh, so uh, I, I didn't go that direction, which I could have. And it wouldn't have been terrible honestly, because we did have an open rambling conversation. I just said, you tell me, what are we going to communicate to this operator? And about two, two minutes, we had something hashed out. It wasn't exactly what I wanted, but it was more of what I wanted than if it had been what I wanted, because those two guys are going to have the same message. We're all going to be aligned. And that operator is going to get consistent education and feedback and not be confused. I mean, that was it. I'm not, not everybody yet oh. all at once. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's just a thought that popped on mind as we were talking through that. We, we talked about psychological safety and we mentioned the, uh, the service industry being a knowledge factory. So literally the value that that industry provides is up here in our heads. We need to pr protect that as much as possible. Um, so I, I absolutely agree with the whole psychological safety um, aspect. Now that, that needs to be a focus. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a hard it's hard to do depending on you know people's individual culture who they are the natural variation you get among humans it's not an easy task it's just it's just not so kudos to John for just allowing it to be eighty percent of what you want letting the ball move forward right right the don't don't let perfection forward. get in the way of progress yeah absolutely right um, and for me you know learning specific behaviors as a leader. Right, like it's a learned skill. It's it's not magic. Um, it's not like I was born this way, or you know, someone. Uh, You're on the right track, baby. <laughs> thanks. Uh, <laughs> but you know, like you, you just. It's a collection of learned skills, and we don't emphasize enough, and we don't just as a, a, a culture, right, in America. Seriously, like you sent 20 people for green belt training last year and you didn't send one person to how to not be a shit supervisor school. Right? Like where Where do you apply to not be a shit supervisor school, John? Where do you apply to that? I don't know, but it seems like a product we should come out with, you know? Like that's what my book is. How to win right now as an operations supervisor. It's like you have to have these skills and here's how you can do it and you can do it right now, right? And I have quite a few operations that are buying my book. Like every new supervisor they get gets a copy and like reads through it uh, because like I said, unmet market need. But you know, if I'm running this corporation, why is it that I put so much value in, I mean, I'll reimburse tuition for a four year degree, but I won't pay for people to learn the basics of leadership psychology and team dynamics and, you know the culture code and all of this stuff right yeah one of the uh, the best leadership schools i've been to is uh called being a parent <laughs> oh god don't pull that card out john's gonna mention cars the whole day and y'all both gonna talk about kids for an hour <laughs> well, you know the i guess the kicker for me with having kids was you know not learning how to lead kids right? It was learning about myself. That was the most valuable part, mm -hmm. you know, especially, right. you know, like I've got a daughter and I can't just like tell her do this. Like it doesn't work that way. You know, I'll be like, do this. He's like, daddy, you know what I love about you? I'm like, no, you have to clean your room. <laughs> Don't, <laughs> you know, she does every trick in the book. She's a psychological wizard. Maybe, you know, maybe you are born that way. I don't know. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's what my kids taught me about myself, you know, and then I get, I get short tempered. 
You know, they, my kids are doing something that I don't want them to do. And I get short tempered and I'm like, wow, you know, I didn't realize that I'm such a self-centered person, you know, with such a short fuse. Yeah. Like it's, it, it, they're kind of like a mirror. That's exactly right. You, you know, I have to realize I have a six-year-old son that that's why he's doing this dumb stuff. I was six once too. Right. Um, if I have a team, I have an inexperienced team. Yeah. They might be messing up, but they're inexperienced. It's my job to get them the experiences, to train them up, is to coach them. Um, not go out there and bark at them for screwing something up. Just spank them, Kyle. Yeah. One. That works. Well, unfortunately, right? uh, that works. Unfortunately, <laughs> with kids, you know, if you kick them, they don't still love you like a dog. So you got to relearn all of your habits. <laughs> <laughs> if you do, and if you do that at work, then HR calls you, and it's that's not a good thing. <laughs> Well, we're right at the one minute there. So we want to wrap it up. We're going to log back in, give a wrap up. I think yeah, we should wrap it up. I mean, we'll, we'll be able to put together about an hour's worth. So Kyle, we really appreciate you joining us today to talk about uh, your experience uh, with lean in banking. I think it'll be a big benefit to our listeners that are sort of in the service industry. Uh, so thanks for sharing with us. Always a great time. Can't wait to have you on uh, the next time. Uh, how can folks get a hold of you? LinkedIn is the best way. I'm active on there. I, if you follow the uh, the Lady Gaga of Lean on LinkedIn, you'll you'll find me in the comments. <laughs> well, all right, uh, Kyle Kampf, ladies and gentlemen, for everybody out there in YouTube land, thank you so much for listening to a quality podcast. Goodbye. I've been saying "coop" for so long. Yeah. I'm sorry, audience. I'm so sorry. Hmm? Is it comp or comp? Or it's comp. Or mine comp. Mine comp. It's comp. No, not mine comp. Comp. I don't know why this is so hard for you, Jake. <laughs>